For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? All right. If you have a Bible with you, you can open them to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship as always. If you don't own a Bible, there's, there's a four or five on the back table. Grab one on your way out or grab one right now. Either way, it would be great to have it in front of you as we get into this time. Look, the Christian faith, unlike um, any other world religion or world system, is not based on ideas. It's not based on, uh, on, on teaching. But it rises or falls on a person, on an incomparable person. Christianity ultimately is about the person and work of Jesus. And if he is not who the Bible says he is and did not do what the Bible says he did, the entire system falls apart. And so this Advent, the four weeks preceding Christmas, we are taking a closer look at at what um, some of the more powerful things said of Jesus by the New Testament. Okay, Early Christians reflected on who he is and, and what he has done. Last week, we looked at Colossians 1. We saw Jesus is described as the center of the universe. The one by whom, for whom, and through whom all things are made. The one in whom all things find their proper place. And the one who reconciles us to God by his work on the cross. This week we looked at Philippians 2 to see the same Jesus, this same incomparable Christ, become the incomparable servant. So if you have your place, we're in Philippians 2. If you'd stand in honor of God's word as we stand under the authority of the word preached, we're going to be reading verses 5 through 11. This is God's word for us. Have this mind among yourselves, as is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we we simply ask that you would open hearts. Holy Spirit, uh, we are intimately dependent on you. Because none of us will hear what you have to say to us today unless you are at work. So we need you, Spirit, to come and to soften our hearts, to open our ears and to illuminate our minds so that we might see the greatness of our Savior and so long that much more for his coming. Would you preach your gospel to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. If you've read the Bible for any amount of time and haven't been surprised at how God does things, the uh, ways in which he acts, uh, the, the patience that he has both with those who follow him and those that don't, I would wager you haven't been really paying much attention. 
But the reality is that our image of God, the image that you and I primarily keep, is this this image of this kind of almighty potentate, this guy who's quick to anger and has a frail ego and is uh, kind of using all of his unlimited power to move forward his agenda without thought of anyone else. He kind of just steamrolls any and sundry who are in his way. And so we come away from our text last week where the Apostle Paul presents Jesus as, as that kind of powerful Right? The, the one who created all things, holds it all together, who, uh, who, who is before all things and the first and all of this stuff. We, we come away from that text, and that's our image. Is that who Jesus is? But then we come to this text, which argues that, in fact, because of the fact that he is God, Jesus is something different. So this week we're going to look at this passage in two ways. Uh, that, as always, that outlines in your bulletin. We're going to go from high to low and then from low to high. That's really easy, right? We're going to go from high to low and then we're going to go from low to high, okay? So let's begin with high to low. Now, last week, um, last week, you remember we talked about Colossians. And you said it, it really looks, scholars will tell you it's a song. It's some kind of poetic song. And, and scholars will tell you the same thing about this text, that Philippians 2, 6 through 11, not verse 5, that kind of leads into it. We'll get to that in a second. But 6 through 11 is a song, and that shouldn't surprise us because Christians, uh, just as much in the ancient world as they do today, have taken the great truths that they believed and set them to song as a way to to kind of sing the truth, to to express it and to remember it. But Paul didn't just jump into into the middle of, or jump into song in the middle of this letter as if he's like living in musical land, right? You know, musical land where everyone just starts singing and they all know the words and everyone thinks that's normal. Why, Why wouldn't this person burst into song? Like, that's not what Paul's doing. Instead, he's trying to teach a point, or rather, he's trying to encourage an attitude. Look down at verse 5. He says this, Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. What he is saying is this, Philippians, Holy Cross, go be like this. What I'm about to say, go, go do this. So before we even get to the song, we need to understand that Paul intends Christians to go and do likewise. To go and be like what he's about to say. Okay, Now that's important as we continue. We'll kind of come back to that at the very end. But I just want you to keep that in mind. Now look at verse, verses 6 and 7 as we see this new frame. Now let me, let me tell you as we get into these verses. I'm going to be taking them slow. We're going to be dealing with little pieces. There's some hard work to do in here. Okay, We're doing it at the beginning because I know to some extent right now y'all are still a little fresh. So just stay with me. We've got some hard interpretive work. Hang with me for a little bit. Paul says first, who being in the form of God. Okay, Now stop there. Most of your translations, including the one that's in your bulletins, and and if you have the ESV, or I think it's in the NIV also, says, who, though being in the form of God, right? You see that? Though being in the form of God. Now, um, we're going to deal with some grammar and some other, some word definitions, so it's very important, so stick with me. Let's start with the word form. The Greek word that... No, the New Testament was not written in English, okay? The, uh, New, the King James folks are wrong. It was not written in English. It was written in Greek. And so, um, it, and so uh, it's written originally in Greek. And the Greek word that we get that word form for is the Greek word morphe, okay? And, and that, when we say form, you and I think um, something that looks like something else. As if what we're talking about is Jesus is like one of the wonder twins. And he did wonder twins powers activate and turned into the form of something, right? And all two of you who watched that show in the 80s, know what I'm talking about. Um, but that word form, that word morphe, the, from which we get the word form, means that which truly characterizes something. That which is most true of it. Okay, So what we're talking about is not some kind of superficial appearance, but what truly defines something. 
So that's important as we come to the issue of whether to insert a though. Now, like I said, many of our translations say though he was in the form of God. That word though is not in the original. It's an interpretive gloss. We add that in because of what we think. Some interpreters think that's what's being said. But, but scholars, especially more recent ones, will tell you that this is better translated not though he was in the form of God, but because he was in the form of God. Okay? Here's what makes the difference. If you were to say, and, and to stick to that kind of idea of though, what we're, what, what we're kind of getting across is, though he was God, something different was about to happen. Though he was God, he was about to act in a way that seems surprising to us. But Paul's actual point is not that at all. It's, in fact, he's going, because he was God, he did this. Because he's the God that's revealed in the scriptures, he did this. Okay? What comes next goes along with his godhood instead of somehow being foreign to it. So then he says, being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Okay, now we still have some work to do here. Now, most of your translations, including the one I read when we did this, said, did not see equality with God something to be grasped or snatched or ah, reach up and grab it. Okay, Um, the word that's used there is very rare. But what it means, and specifically in the form that it's in, is not just taking something. As if he snatches it. But it's, it's taking something to use for your own benefit. To use for your own selfish means. And so Paul is saying, because he is truly God, because Jesus is truly God, he did not see his godhood as something to be used for his own selfish means. He didn't see his godhood as something to be used for his own flourishing, for his own uh, selfishness. But instead, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. Okay? All right. Now the last part of this frame. Let's start with the word emptied. When you and I hear emptied, we think um, removal, right? Because if you empty a bucket of water, the water's gone. But again, that's not exactly what's being explained here, especially within the context. Um, We can reinforce that, of course, with that idea of though being in the form of God. What what we tend to think then is that though he was in the form of God, Jesus somehow emptied out all of his godness. He's all gone, and now he's a servant. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. Jesus didn't somehow cease to be God or somehow had less godness, less godhood because he was in the flesh. The fullness of, what what did Paul say last week? The fullness of God dwelt in him. Not partly, fullness, okay? Emptied here simply means to give himself. And so there are two contrasts that are going on here. And this one is between using something for your own benefit or using it for the sake of others. Paul is saying, because Jesus is God, he didn't use his godness for himself. He used it for us. And he did this by taking the form of a servant. That word form is the exact same word he used before. So in other words, Jesus gave himself by becoming what truly constitutes a servant. So let me sum up. Paul is saying this. I know that you guys think God should be dictators. I know that you think they should just use everything around them, including their power and all of us, for their own benefit. But because Jesus is God, he didn't use his power for himself. He instead used it for others by becoming a servant. Paul is referring to what it means to be God, not according to our ideas, but according to how God has revealed himself in his word. This is not a foreign deity. This is the God of the Bible. This is who God has always revealed himself to be. 
Okay? Now that's our frame. Now let's look at a costly service. What did it mean for Jesus to take the form of a servant? Look down at verses 7 to 8. He says this. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in outward form as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, up to now, I've simply assumed something. It's something that Paul has assumed. A lot of the New Testament assumes it. They don't feel a whole lot of need to teach it, uh, to, to argue for it. But it's something that we need to at least mention explicitly. And that is, both, that is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Okay? It's not that he is somehow just a really good man, but not, not God. Nor is, he, uh, something, nor is he just appears to be man, but in fact is this kind of disconnected, ethereal presence of deity. He is both fully God and fully man. Now, if you're new to Christianity, that's a little bizarre, right? In fact, many have tried to argue that Jesus would never have argued such a thing. He would never have argued that while he's praying to the Father, he, in fact, is God because Jesus is Jewish. And that, that's not something that you would do if you're, if you're a good monotheist. Instead, that was invented by his followers, who were all also Jewish monotheists, right? Uh, no, this, this is something that's consistent, something that Jesus said a lot. Because <laughs> you see, the Christian notion of God is that God exists in three persons. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is understood to be God the Son. Now, this is something that the, New, the Old Testament hints at. Right? God often talks about himself in terms such as we or us, which is weird. Why, why would he do that? Well, because there's a plurality in God. At other times, you'll see these other, these other uh, figures come on the scene who receive worship as God. There's this one, it's called the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. It's very definite. And when the angel of the Lord comes on the scene, people worship him. And he speaks for God in the eye. He says, in the first person, singular, he says, I'm telling you to go do this. And he never stops people from treating him as if he's the God who, who they worship. Never stops them. Now, when other angels come on the scene and people bow down to worship, they're like, whoa, stop, don't do that. I'm not someone to be worshipped. But when the angel of the Lord comes on the scene, there's no problem. Weird. What the Old Testament has in shadows and in, in sketch, the New Testament fleshes out in full color. God exists in three persons. But at the same time, the notion that the true God would become human... And even subject himself to death seems outlandish as much then as now. And so Paul explains it this way. Because he isn't the God we imagine, but instead the God he reveals himself to be, he became a servant by adding to himself humanity. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Two natures, a divine one and a human nature, in one divine person. Okay? You still with me? That's a lot of theology. Just, Just hang with me for a second. But it says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Now that raises a question, right? I mean, why? Why that? Many of us ask that question. Why? Why death? Okay. Now people today have lots of ideas about this. Why did Jesus die? Was it to show his love for us? As if somehow like choosing to die is loving to all those around you. Can I tell you that that is just not the case, right? Is it, is it to show us... Um, to, to, to somehow uh, kind of express the, the holiness of God. I mean, maybe, but how does that accomplish that exactly? The Bible's very clear. He died because of us. 
Now, that's controversial, so follow me. The Bible says you and I have a problem we can't fix. That problem is called sin. And now when I say sin, some of us think rules. We broke rules like we broke curfew. And somehow now God's going to spank us because we broke curfew. But the Bible talks about in terms of relationship. It's not rules you broke, but a relationship. Those rules are connected to the relationship. It's still a relationship. And every one of us has broken relationship with God, and we can't fix it. We need a rescuer. And so Jesus died to bear the judgment that our betrayal of God deserved. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what he's trying to get at. Because Jesus is God, he didn't selfishly use his godness for his own benefit. That wouldn't be like God. That's not what God is like. Instead, he humbled himself and served us by dying for us. But not just any death. Death on a cross. Crucifixion. In the ancient world, there was no death more awful than crucifixion. I'm not saying that the Romans didn't have more painful ways to kill you. They did. I'm saying there was nothing more awful. Stripped naked, left bloody and hanging for all to see, while eventually, eventually, because you can no longer push against the nails that are in your limbs to get up to get a breath, you suffocate for all to see. That was the length of Jesus' willingness to serve. To bear not only the wrath of God for us, but our worst kind of hatred. That is the God that the Bible reveals. And that brings us to a revised vision. Listen close. Like Whether you're a Christian in this room or not, uh, all of us have ideas of who God is, and all of those are pretty diverse, but I'm going to talk, speak to two of them because I think most of our images come into one of two categories, okay? And these, like, I think this passage helps to revise those for us as we come to celebrate the coming of Jesus. The first is God as a demanding judge. Because for many of us in this room, God is a taskmaster. He is harsh. He is a scolding figure full of fire and wrath. And he is standing over us, waiting for us to get our act together. And for those of us who hold this vision, we don't need to be told that that we we don't have it together. We don't need to be told that we don't measure up. We know that. And we're terrified of it. And I mean, look, some of you in this room, others see you and they don't see that, right? Because the image that you portray to them is that you've got it all together. That you're very confident in the fact that God should like you. In fact, you probably seem really arrogant, To others. But you and I both know that inside, there's that anxiety that just doesn't seem to stop. Is it enough? Is it enough? You see him, he's standing over you with the clipboard, right? Oh, good job. Ooh, sorry. Try again. And and he's waiting, and he's just, and, and you wonder, am I enough? Is it enough? God has given us a standard to meet, and then waits. To see if we've done it. And if you're a Christian and hold this, Jesus functions either, either as like the giver of more rules or kind of the one who can kind of maybe fudge it a little when we can't quite make it. To you, friends, Paul says this. God is a servant, not a taskmaster. Because Jesus is God, he served. Because Jesus is God, He came to rescue you. Because Jesus is God, he isn't asking you to be a good little boy or or a good little girl, but came to serve you. 
to rescue you and to save you. He knows you can't do it. That's why he came. He knows it. He's not asking you to clean it up. Look and see who God actually is. That's the first image. The second is the image of God as this like capricious and petulant child who flies off at the handle at the slightest kind of affront, who gets angry at people for just living their lives. For those of us who hold this, we know that we're not perfect, but I mean, what's the big deal, right? We're not hurting anybody. And if we are, they probably had it coming. I mean, you don't know what my life is like, right? In other words, we don't think what we do should make God angry at all. He should be fine with whatever we give. And to you, Paul says this. You and I betrayed God. And we deserve judgment. But Jesus didn't use his godness for his own good. He used it for you. Your problem, my problem, is deathly serious. But he didn't stand way off and demand, you will get your act together. I'm going to hold my breath. Like, he's not like, I'm going to get you so angry with you, you didn't get your act together. Like, that's not who he is. He used all his power, all his privilege, not to destroy you, but to rescue you. And it cost him everything. So we've gone low. Now it's time for the way up. Look down at verse 9 for the road to glory. Paul says this. He says, therefore. Now, I know it's cliche. Stay with me. When you see a therefore, right, you're, you're looking at, at what, what he's about to say is, is drawn, is a conclusion he's drawing from what's come before. Okay? So, therefore, God exalted him highly, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All right? Now stop there. This statement is important. Because Jesus' story didn't end with the cross. If it did, what we have is another tragic death in a string of tragic deaths that has led up to other tragic deaths of which we have been made painfully aware in the last few weeks. Tragic deaths happen. That is not what happened here. Jesus came to do a work. A work that the triune God had planned. Jesus came, sent by the Father in the power of the Spirit to die in the place of sinners. But you see, if the story ended there, then what we have, like I said, is another tragic death. Instead, God exalted him. Now, what we shouldn't see, this is some kind of reward. Like, Jesus was a good boy, so he got, he got the good seat. And if you were a good boy or a good girl like Jesus, you'd get the high seat too. Hmm? That's not what this is. Think with me. Think with me. This isn't a reward. This is a vindication. Why? Because it is outrageous to think that God would both become human, let alone become human, and then die for us? Think about one of the biggest problems that, that Islam has with Christianity is the idea that Jesus, who, who they don't see as God, but just being God's prophet. God wouldn't let his prophet die. No, 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 no. That's not what God does. He does not let his prophets die. They have power. They do great things. And Paul is speaking of this. It's a vindication. Remember, Jesus did not cease to be God when he came in the flesh. God the Son was no less God when he came into the manger. When he was smaller than Levi, no less God in the flesh. He didn't cease to be God. 
It was because of his godhood that he did that. Because of it that he gave himself for us. And thus the Father vindicated him and showed him to be the one who he had always been, the one he had claimed to be. And and like I said, we can get confused on that because our vision of what God should be like and what God's rescuer should be like is, is not something that Jesus would come and die. But he did, and God vindicated him. He showed that, in fact, the name of Jesus is above every name. That the road to glory ran through the cross. And so Paul continues that God bestowed on him every name with a different Lord. He says that he did that so that, with the purpose of, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we say Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul actually takes that word Lord and throws it to the front. That every, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that the Lord is Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Because, it, remember, this is written in the Philippians. And the Philippians live in a city called Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. Which means the majority of people in Philippi are Roman citizens. It's a big deal in the first century. Big deal in the Roman world. And if you're a Roman citizen, you know that Rome has a Lord. He's got a Lord. His name's Caesar. In fact, it was in the name of this Lord that Jesus was crucified. It was in the authority of this Lord that the apparently false king Jesus was displayed on a cross with a mocking sign above his head that read, King of the Jews in every language that anyone nearby would have been able to read. It was at this Lord's name that many offered sacrifices and all would bow in his presence. And so this is a very loaded phrase. Paul is saying that there will come a day when, whether willingly or not, every knee will bow and every tongue will admit that Jesus is in fact the true Lord, including Caesar. The reality is he was born in a manger, right? He was born in a manger. We thought that too low. He was raised in a backwoods town, and we knew it, that it would be too humble. He gained a following. We began to think, maybe it's possible. He served the lowly. We just kind of thought it was bizarre. He died in humiliation, and we thought him a fool. But friends, it does not matter what we think. What, it matter, what matters is what is true. And Paul is saying that Jesus was resurrected so that all would acknowledge Him as the true Lord of creation. And so, what I'd like to do now is apply this finally by returning to what Paul says in verse 5. In light of this song, in light of this is what Jesus did, He says, go and be like this. Go and do this. Have this kind of mindset. Okay. Now think with me. Paul is told this story, or rather he he sung this song for a very definite purpose, to encourage Christians to be like this. Can you imagine that? Using, if if you were the Lord of all creation with all, all privileges and rights at your disposal, and people would turn away from you, that you would actually use all of that for them? For the enemy? That is outrageous. Paul says, you want to be like God? Be like this. But this isn't us. This is like the opposite of us. 
You and I talk about the Christmas spirit, right? And what we mean by that is like going past the dude who's freezing with a little bell and dropping some coins in his little red bucket. And we're like, yeah, Merry Christmas. I got the Christmas spirit. That's not the Christmas spirit. This is the Christmas spirit. Having this mind, serving this radically. But this whole thing is so hard for us to believe because it assumes someone who has advantage, not using it for their own good, but using it for others. And this is our opposite reaction because as humans, our entire history has been full of us reaching for privileges we don't have to use for our own selfishness. Not using the ones we do have for others. Reaching for ones we do not have, have no right to, and saying, I will take that and I will use it for me. We've been doing it since the garden. We want the crown. We want the acclaim. But we want the crown without the cross. We want to use our rights to our advantage. And we do this because we think we have to. And look, I'm no different. I'm no different. I'm not speaking from on high here. What I want more than anything else because of my story is for people to think I'm awesome and so not to leave me. That's what I want. And I will use, shamefully, everything at my disposal to make sure that happens. So what is it that can free us to embody this? What is it that can embolden us to serve and to leave our vindication up to another? The answer in the New Testament is the gospel of Jesus. Listen to me. You and I are hardwired. Like it's, it's ingrained in our nature to seek for our own good. That's what we do. We are hardwired to look out for number one. We We will not use our advantages for others unless we believe that those advantages can't truly give us what we want and need. We won't give ourselves for others unless we believe that someone has given themselves fully for us. Because you see, if you believe that your deepest need, your greatest desire uh, recon- is reconciliation with God, and that has been secured for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you didn't do anything to get it, you can't do anything to lose it, then you can give yourself away. If you don't, listen to me, if you don't believe that, if you come from this place and you're like, I know preachers said something about Jesus. I'm not worried about Jesus. I just want to, I'm going to, you know what? That sounds good. I'm going to go and do like that. If you try and embody this without him, you will be doing it to get something. Whether it's a good reputation or a good record or even good feelings. Like, I like to serve people because it makes me feel good. Good for you. That's good. You see, even our acts of charity and service can become selfish when we use them to get something for ourselves. But when we are resting in Christ, when we are trusting in Him to be our satisfaction for sin, our rightness before God, then we can serve out of that instead of serving to get that. This is what it means to use your position, to use your secure place to empty and give yourself away. Friends, you cannot have the Christmas spirit without the Christ. It doesn't come. Look to him, the one who is God, the God we would never have imagined, but were made to be with, the one who served us when we never deserved it, and the one who was born to rescue us. Would you pray with me? Lord, the reality is, is that this image of you is not something we would have ever imagined. But also, in reality... The image that you give us of ourselves is not something we would ever have imagined. We are more broken than we ever dared think. We 
We are more sinful than we ever imagined, but we are also more loved and served than we ever dreamed. So Lord, as we come and, and come out of this time, I just pray that you would impress your gospel upon us. That we would run to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or for the first time in the last 10 seconds. We need him, all of us do. No one in this room can claim they don't. I pray that you would use this time to draw us closer to you and so lean into to the celebration of your coming, Jesus, and, and thus lean in and long for your coming again to make the world right. This is all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.